Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile are the big three cellular carriers in the United States, and they all want just one thing that only the Helium Network can offer. Welcome to The Hotspot. I'm your host, Armand Desfouliar-Jamandi. Today's guest is Russell Frum, an engineer with over seven years of experience deploying network coverage and optimizing systems for huge U.S. carriers like Verizon Wireless and U.S. Cellular. I've been hoping to get someone like Russell on the podcast for a long time. 5G is a complicated subject, and I've been wanting to learn from an expert like Russell about how 5G networks are built and paid for, what exactly they are to begin with, and how Helium 5G fits into them in the grander scheme of things. It turns out that Russell was the perfect person to answer these questions and more, and I highly recommend listening to this episode all the way through, especially if you're interested in deploying 5G hotspots. You will come out far ahead of the competition at the end of this episode with a solid understanding of what the cellular market needs and how you can provide it. So I won't keep you waiting any longer. Here's my interview with Russell. Russ, welcome to the show. Thanks, Armand. Happy to be here. It's so exciting to have you here. I think you bring a different perspective than anyone else who's ever been on this show before with tons of experience in the telecom industry. So I'd love if you could share a little bit about your background. I think you have a lot to offer our listeners here. Uh, tell them a lot of things that they didn't know before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, you know, and this is part of the reason why I'm so excited about, about Helium. So my background is I worked in telecommunications. Uh, I mainly worked for Verizon Wireless where I deployed hundreds of 4G cell sites and basically built the network uh, in the northern Midwest. And then as I went through my career there at Verizon, moved on to being a uh, network engineer in charge of multiple data centers in the Midwest. And then finally, um, before I left, the first time I left the industry, uh, built out their cloud platform uh, for the worldwide Verizon cloud. Um, after that, I, I moved into cybersecurity and then came back to telecom to work at US Cellular uh, where I was a network security engineer protecting them basically from hackers around the world. Uh, I've been in the industry quite a bit. I was at Verizon Wireless for seven plus years. I had a variety of different roles. I started out as like a lowly, what they call, you know, ops technician, and then worked my way up to principal engineer. So I got to see the business from a variety of different ways and uh, became an expert in 4G networks, how to build them, how to provision them um, and deploy them out. So to me, a lot of like 4G and 5G terminology because I was exposed to it for years and trained on it. Um, and I actually you know, provisioned the actual equipment itself. So, you know, I would I'd log into a machine and there's 20 million people with their cell phones running through there. I'm like, whoa, okay, you know, definitely don't want to make a typo. Uh, so uh, yeah, I've had a lot of experience in the industry and that's why I was so excited about the Helium project and got into it you know, as quick as I could um, and became basically a micro network operator uh, here in the Midwest where I helped people mostly in Wisconsin um, in Minnesota, Michigan, uh, really get started um, and explain it to them and also speak at conferences. I got a big one coming up in April called CypherCon, where I'm sharing and really trying to evangelize the Helium network and Helium community and break it down so that more and more people get hotspots to join the network and grow it. It's really exciting that someone with your experience, who's basically a veteran in the telecom industry, would be interested in helium and excited about it. I don't know if all of us understand why you'd be interested and I'm hoping you can help us understand from your perspective what's so uh, exciting about it. And then also on the flip side, help us understand what's so exciting and important about this existing technology that we all take for granted, right? We all have cell phones. Every single one of us has a phone. We use them constantly and they're connected to these cellular networks. 
And at the end of the day, we don't really think much about how that actually happens or, or what it means to have a cell phone in the connectivity sense. It's all sort of obfuscated from us, which is great from a consumer perspective. But when you're trying to understand the structure of everything, it can be confusing where to even begin trying to understand something like cellular technology. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. It is uh, extremely complicated learning all the terminology and lingo and how it works. And it's funny, um, you know, I agree from working in the industry, everyone takes their cell phone for granted until it stops working. Everyone loves their cell phone until it's slow. It doesn't load. Uh, used to be, you know, the primary reason when I started in the industry was um, you can't get a phone call through or a phone call drops. Now it's all now it's all data. Um, so going back to, you know, why am I so excited about this? Well, this kind of comes to, you know, a, a big reason why I think, you know, helium is, is so impactful. I think that it is such an energizing and, you know, amazing change to how we communicate. This is like, I would just put a couple of notches below, like, you know, basically the invention of the internet. It's that big of a deal. The reason is today, when you want to get data connectivity on your cell phone or on your hotspot or on your laptop, and go around the world, you've got to go through the major telcos, uh, usually in that, that country and area. Um, the big thing why I'm so excited about it is that the primary purpose of the internet was to share information and to help people learn. That was like the grand vision when it all started. And I think the grand vision of Helium is to create ubiquitous, affordable wireless service everywhere in the world. Without, you know, an exclusive, without just thinking about how much profit you make, we're really worried about you know, how to get this connectivity out there. And the amazing thing about it that really surprises me is that it's actually sharing the revenue with normal people, you know, that can actually just buy this hardware as long as it's from an approved manufacturer and get it up and running. It's very simple, very easy to do, and you can start earning enough income. I mean, but with most of the hosts I work with, they're paying their internet bill with it at a minimum or more. Uh, so it's exciting. Like I would never ever think that the carriers would come up with something this disruptive to their existing technology on their own. So that's why I'm so excited about it because it's going to make, I think in the long run, the next five to 10 years and longer, much more affordable data transmission and a lot more reliable data transmission. And the way that the Helium network works, I, I just, I love their community um, and their founder, their technology, because they're, they're really focused on making it easy and simple and ubiquitous and sharing what they earn. Like if they, a traditional telecom startup would start a new carrier and keep it all themselves. They're not going to share revenue with anybody. It's their revenue. But here, there's, they're just open about it. And it's all transparent on the Helium Explorer. It's just amazing. I think it's a huge step forward, like an exponential step forward in the technology uh, that we're using to communicate with each other and their approach to it. And I, I, I think it's going to take years, but eventually this will be something that um, everyone will be talking about everywhere in the world that don't know about it already, about how affordable and ubiquitous it is. And uh, just the exciting news we're getting already about partnerships is showing we're in the right direction. Wow. Well, I think you basically put into words the vision of Helium quite well. This wireless service, it can be democratized. It's just that no one has come up with a model until Helium. The price of starting a new carrier begins in the billions. Even if you apply you know, traditional quote unquote crypto to uh, this problem and try to create, you know, like a DAO to fundraise and buy spectrum or whatever, it's still going to be like out of the reach of the biggest versions of that type of crowdfunding project 
uh, that have even existed thus far. I really want to learn a lot from you about why this is all the way it is. I think it's gr- going to be very instructive to start way at the beginning, which is what is cellular service, right? Like I have this phone. I know that I can make calls and texts. I know I can browse the internet, watch YouTube. And I know that it kind of basically works wherever I go. But what is it doing? Like, what is this phone doing? How does it get connectivity? And what role does the telco play in providing that connectivity? Yeah, yeah, it's really amazing um, behind the scenes because it it just works for most people. Like, I don't really care how it works. Uh, But what it's actually doing in the background is your phone is talking over the radio, kind of similar to what we're doing now with LoRaWAN, to cell sites, very similar to our hotspots that we have now, or, or micro cells, there's different terms you know, some people are using for them. And like a, it, it's sampling the air like a million times a second saying, all right, who can I talk to? How strong is that signal? At the same time, that little chip that's in it, that little SIM card, uh, really uniquely identifies it and is used to really authenticate you to that network and say, okay, I know who I can talk to and transmit data to. So when you go and load up your web browser, and let's say we're going to go to google.com, we're going to start a search. Your phone's going it, to, it's going to go down through the stack, go down to what they call the baseband of that phone and go, I have a request for this data. It's going to quickly survey who it can talk to, pick the strongest slash best one, and that data is going to go to that cell site. And then that cell site's going to go through, actually wired, that's that first hop, that wireless hop to the cell site. After that, it's going to be wired. Usually it's going to go over dark, you know, what they call dark fiber, like your fiber internet to your phone, back to a data center. Um, so you think of like the big Google data centers. They look a lot like that. There's different terms in the industry uh, for them, but it's basically data centers. And then finally, it's going to drop off on the public internet, just like your home internet. And that's, you know, on a super high level, how your phone is awake. It's always awake. It's always talking. Even when you're sleeping, it's talking and going, I got data transmit, especially with how many apps we have, and how many updates we have these days. It's always talking. That's really what's kind of, that, that's, you know, a snippet of what's going on in the background. And, and the carriers spend a huge amount of time and money and resources making sure that when you want to do something, when you want to even watch this video clip on YouTube, it is as fast and reliable as possible while also being as affordable as possible is another big one um, because they are, you know, they are not, um, you know, public companies or private companies. They're very profit motivated. They need to have a return to their shareholders. So that's a, a big part of their calculations for how they build the network and why they build it the way it is today. So you say that they connect to these cell sites. What exactly is a cell site? I imagine that most of us go through our lives not even having noticed or paid attention or even recognized a cell site, and yet they're everywhere. So what do they look like? Yeah, you know, it's actually kind of funny. Like on the Helium forums, people are like, I never noticed that. There were so many towers around me. Until you start looking for them, they seem like they're invisible. Uh, so here's what a, a, a tower is. So what it typically is going to be a metal pole uh, that goes up, you know, I'd say, you know, at least 60 feet in the air. Um, the exact height will depend on, on, on a variety of factors. And then what you will see is these um, kind of rec- these large rectangular, and you know, I, I call them antennas, like that's what they are, but these large rectangular radios slash antennas that are going to be on there. And they're usually going to be in sets of three. So let's say you go, you have a pole that's going straight up, and then about this up, 
that's where you're going to see these little antennas. It's just like my finger. You'll have one on this side, one over here, and one over here. We call that a, a typical three-sector design to cover all the areas around it. And they can be at different heights. The reason why they're at different heights is because they've tuned their network. Um, for instance, maybe Sprint well, it wants to be lower and other ones want to be higher. It depends on the coverage that they want. Also, a lot of these radios, they can remotely control them. So if you watched it like all day, um, or you watched it for a couple of weeks or months, you'd actually see them move a little bit and tilt a little bit remotely, which is very cool um, with all the work they do. So that's basically what you're looking for, is something that's taller than what's around it. And just look for those, those three little kind of rectangles around it. That's going to be a cell site. Um, there's also free apps you can download as well that will help you, help you show on a map which cell site your phone is actually talking to live. So these cell sites that you're talking about, up high, outdoors, on a pole with three-sector designs, huge, right? Like, what's the difference, just to bring helium into the conversation for a second before we go later into detail about how helium fits all into this, what's the difference between these cell sites and what is available right now for helium 5G? Because it looks very, very different, right? You're not talking about an outdoor pole, this is like a little indoor, basically a box that you put somewhere and that is able to offer service in an indoor area. So what are those cell sites that the carriers deployed called? And then what, how does the Helium 5G indoor sort of experience fit in there? Yeah, yeah. So the, the term for those um, in the industry is macro sites. Um, macro meaning it, it's, uh, it covers a wide area. And typically carriers, if you go to the bottom of that site, what you'll see is typically a little brick, we call it a shelter, and that's a little brick building that houses the network information. And I, I mentioned dark fiber earlier. The dark fiber, you know, basically what it's using to get that data out to the internet, it's going to go to that shelter as a hardwired connection. And usually it's redundant. There's going to be two connections um, for it. The, the carriers are really big on redundancy. So that's when you definitely know you've got a cell site. You see this little kind of brick, brick or steel building at the bottom. You see a big tall tower. You see sets of these three uh, radios at different heights. You're like, you've definitely got um, a macro cell site. What we have at, at Helium right now is very, very different than that. And while I would love to have one of those, I probably wouldn't be able to afford it or justify it uh, financially um, just for the, for the payment to have a site like that. So right now, what we currently have released with Freedom 5 is an indoor CBRS and uh, basically antenna that runs on LTE. And that is, is a bit different. Number one, it's indoors. So you cannot, um, it's illegal to install that outside. Not outside of that side, designed to go outside. Um, the second thing, it's only one of them. I mentioned we normally have three of them. Well, it, most people, uh, as far as I know, only have one of them. So you got to pick your favorite direction that's probably going to have the most traffic, most people, most cell phones, most devices, and point it over there. Uh, so what we have now is very different. Now, of course, um, Bay Cells announced that they're going to be coming out with some outdoor antennas. And those are very different um, from what we have today is that you can actually put those outside on a pole. Um, from what I see, it looks like those are going to be flat panels. So those will cover, you know, maybe 120 degrees. You'd still need three of them to cover all the way around whatever your location is, probably your house on the roof. Um, on top of that, you're, you can't install it out there without actually having a license, uh, what they call a CPI license. So we're very, very lucky in the United States to have CBRS Spectrum. That is, that is really what allows any type of LTE, 4G, 5G um, you know, technology to exist on the Helium platform. And it's a huge gift that we have here that we're lucky to have. And because of that, we're allowed by the FCC to actually put these out 
and use Zebra Spectrum. Um, my memory is, I believe it's band 28 on your cell phone. So if you want to get technical and Google it, you can be like, let's model my cell phone. What bands does it support? If it supports the CBRS band, it will work on Helium. And, um, you know, Freedom Fi kind of walked people through that with the, with the kits that they sent out. So that's, you know, where we're at now is we just have these indoor ones that cover, you know, one really one focused direction. We It's been announced that we've got outdoor ones coming in, but you need a license to legally install those. Um, so you don't want to get in trouble. You definitely want to follow that and get that. Now you can get that training. You can Google it, you know, get that training, Google it. It's, it's about 600 bucks to get it online. There's a variety of companies that are out there. Comscope, you can Google it. Um, but you definitely want to have that before you install it outside. Reason being is uh, safety, um, safety and licensing. They, they do want you to have some idea of what you're working with, the exposure that you have, the power levels that you're working with. Those big macro cells, they put out a lot more power than, than what we're putting out here. Um, we're used to you know, like LoRaWAN models, and those are what, you know, is advertised. Those use as much as a light bulb. They're, they're using hardly any power at all. And I'm amazed how far it goes. I'm going out 20 miles from my house. It's amazing. Um, I'm not expecting that from LTE. So even on a CBRS band with, with very little other people using that spectrum in the area yet. So mainly being that it's, it's not, I'm not expecting that amount of power. Now that gets down to the antennas that you're using, how you want to focus it, et cetera, as well as limits on the power that you can use. But that's, you know, the state of where we're at and where I'm hoping and, you know, where I've seen we're going with this year is that we're going to have a lot more vendors available. They're going to have equipment that you can buy. We're going to have lots of antennas to pick, and they're going to be at different power levels. So basically, you're going to be able to, on your own, if you have the license, install it yourself, build one of these, you know, a, a smaller version of these macro cells. And this is where I bring in kind of a new term um, that was a very big deal in the industry about five years ago uh, called small cells. And these are the other cell sites that you probably don't see. <laughs> they're really invisible. These are... Really small ones that are typically put on like um, your electric poles. Um, most people don't see them. They're, they're hidden usually. They're colored green. Um, they might even put like fake branches around it if they try to make it look like a tree. Um, small cells are not like those macro cells. that cover huge areas and want to cover as much traffic as possible. Small cells are meant to be just these little cell sites that just cover a small area, maybe even just a block of houses with high-speed, reliable internet access through the carrier. So these macro cells, how many people do they typically cover? Are we talking, you know, hundreds of people or thousands or tens of thousands? It sounds like there's a lot that goes into them, not just uh, the radio and the backhaul, right? The fiber lines, you said there are redundant fiber lines that go in there, which must be very expensive. I'm sure there's also redundant power, backup batteries. And of course, uh, whoever deploys that site has to lease real estate or own real estate in order to build it there. So there are a lot of costs that go into these things. How much coverage are the big telcos getting out of investing into those macro sites? It can, it can be thousands. Uh, typically, it's hundreds is, is what I saw in my experience. Um, but it's not just the number of devices. It's how much are they talking? How much bandwidth are they actually requesting? It's a big part of it, too, because you can have one user who's trying to hog it all and use a massive amount of bandwidth. Now, um, there's, there's other things I won't go into that the carrier does to kind of minimize um, that, that data and cache it. But um, basically, people who are using more data, they can take the spot of other cellular devices. Um, however, they do, um, there's mechanisms within 5G to make sure that it's as fair as possible and everyone's able to use it unless we're in an outage scenario. 
um, where it's completely overwhelmed. Let's say there's a national emergency um, or there's way more people there than expected. Um, then there are ways to get priority that are built into the cellular network where, you, where you're allowed to bump for. But um, up to 4G, it was very fair. Everyone, as long as you were near that cell site, you got pretty much the same service um, as somebody right next to you. 5G changed a little bit with what they called network slicing to where they can change the service levels. You can be right next to somebody and they can have a completely different experience and you can be faster or slower uh, versus a traditional uh, 4G site. So the answer is typically thousands to hundreds, uh, depending where you're at. Um, the other thing is area. It's not just how many people you can cover and how much bandwidth you can get through there, but what type is area. Like you take a macro cell and you put it in a more rural area, you can cover you know a lot more. You know they're going they're going out wide with the three sector. You can cover a lot more area. Typically, you're going to go out you know tens of miles more. Where if you put a cell site downtown, you might only cover a block. So it's a huge difference. So there's a lot that goes into planning these and tuning them so that they're putting out the right power at the right place and the right coverage so that everyone who uses it has the best experience possible. So there's a lot that goes on in the back end. There are a lot of field technicians out there who need to deploy these sites, maintain them, make sure that they stay up, and basically make sure that all of the data and power that's flowing into there is uncongested and reliable. This is all very expensive. So I, I want to kind of get into what the cost model is for the carriers. Like, what is their business? How does this make sense for them to invest all this capital into building these huge sites? Why do the carriers spend so much money? I mean, if you look at the capital expenditure of these carriers, it's in the billions to tens of billions per year. What are they spending it on? Are they spending it on like building the actual towers themselves, maintaining them? What are the costs there? Why is it so expensive? Yeah, there, there's a lot of things that go into the cost. And I, I have kind of my own uh, opinion, which I'll leave to the end, uh, based on my experience working in the industry, where, where those costs uh, could, could be trimmed more. Uh, the majority of the money is first spent on the rights to use uh, wireless spectrum. So they get to use certain frequencies that talk with your cell phones. Um, that's where they first spend the most. Next is actually getting the rights to put up those sites, whether they're small cells or macro cells, um, is actually getting those locations. That's something they've been doing for decades. They're very good at it. And also negotiating with people who own those sites to make sure the costs are as low as possible uh, for what they're doing. And to make sure they get about the radios and network equipment, um, the antennas, make sure that all that is in and is put in as most affordably as possible. They also have to typically, even though if they lease the area, they have to put the shelter in on their dime um, improvements for there, as well as pay. They might have to trench um, fiber into there uh, from whoever the, whoever they can get to come in, especially in a rural area, you might have only one choice. Um, so a lot of costs come in on the physical build out. The other costs come in um, on operating it. So they spend a tremendous amount of resources on people and staff that monitor the network. Now, a lot of this has been automated um, in kind of the 5G era. In the 4, 4G era, this was it was still automated, but there were, you had a lot more engineers reviewing all the data. Um, with 5G, they have automatic, um, you know, what they call SON, techno SON technology. Um, Cisco has equipment out that does this. It's called self-optimizing network. So they They basically allow some amount of like, you know, we'll call it a little bit of AI to tune and move radios and power levels a little bit within the network. The majority of the co of the cost is sunk into that capital expense of building out all that equipment building out those data centers and those sites and getting rights to do it. 
after that, it's on the people that actually run the network um, and bring it up, um, as well as the retail stores um, are a pretty significant expense as well. So that's where the, the costs are coming in. Um, and, and being in the industry, the, the real big thing that you want to focus on is what is your cost for your subscriber? The more profitable you get, you got to break it down so that, you know, for all the retail stores, for all the engineers, um, for all the macro sites, the small, small cells, the data centers, what is your actual cost per gig delivered to the user? And bringing that cost as low as possible, um, really low. And that's where I think there's a huge opportunity for Helium to help the big carriers kind of hit the target number that they want to hit. So what are the challenges in bringing that cost down? Couldn't they just, you know, recruit people in an open source way to sort of add cell sites onto the network, kind of like Helium is doing, and to provide the equipment, just say, hey, you know, here's the equipment, go buy it. Uh, anyone can come participate. And suddenly everyone who's participating is reducing our costs for, you know, the site access, for the equipment, for the people, the maintenance. And they already have the retail stores, so that's already you know like a sunk cost for them, right? They're not going to need to add more retail stores if there's more service. So, what is preventing the carriers from just doing this themselves and saying, "Hey, we need a little bit of help building the network. We'll compensate people who are willing to add on cell sites to this network." Why is Helium an attractive option to them, whereas bringing people in directly is not an attractive option? Yeah, yeah. So that you know, um, so that they the most. Partnerships they've done is with roaming agreements and working with what we call rural carriers or smaller carriers outside of the big three. The big three are you know Verizon, AT and T, T Mobile slash Sprint. Um, they the idea of sharing their network with people who aren't engineers is like blasphemy. Like like why would you ever do that? Like they because they they lose so much control. I think it would it would really it would never get through any type of approval or committee normally. Um, the second thing is that um, what the network, the big network operators that, you, that you're thinking about, they don't build their own equipment. They buy it and deploy it. They're really, really good at deploying equipment, provisioning it, and running it. What they're not typically doing in-house, and what they've never done in-house uh, so far, is actually build the equipment themselves. Um, that's been done by, right now, the biggest company would be Ericsson, um, that allows them to get where the radios come from. Now they might get antennas from, from other providers. There's a lot of antenna companies out there, but in terms of the software that actually runs their whole network and allows them to troubleshoot and measure everything and automate everything, they're going to go with Cisco, Ericsson, and other big name, uh, well-known companies. And it's incredibly expensive to license it, to procure it. Um, all that network equipment, extremely expensive. So the idea that, you know, they would actually share their network with a, with somebody who's not an engineer, with a group that's that they don't have direct control over, I think it's just completely the opposite of how they've done things forever. I mean, they really started going in the, in the mid '80s is really when they first started coming up in, in major cities, and I just think that it is so radically different and transformative. Um, it is something that would normally never come out of the telecom organization. It's so innovative. I think it really puts them on their heels and also threatens their relationships uh, with some of the manufacturers and suppliers that they work with today. So I don't think it would get very far at all inside of a carrier. But outside of it, where we're at with Helium, it's a whole different game. Because now it's like, okay, this is a, this can, they really pay attention to reducing cost. And if the cost can be reduced significantly while not losing quality, it's like a no-brainer we're going to do it. 
Why? Because we're going to get a better return. We're going to get, we'll be more profitable and return more to our shareholders. It's, it, it wins on the balance sheet. It wins for the business. So why is lowering costs so important? Has this always been the center of carriers' attention, or is this a problem that's brought on by newer technology where the capital expenditure is now higher and they need to lower costs? Yeah, so that, that actually touches, I think, on, on a bigger issue in the telecom industry. The costs are going down. They can buy at scale. They can negotiate very harshly to get the prices that they need to hit. That's not the, not the issue. Um, the issue is that for them it is the value-added services that come on top of it. And this is kind of the, the, the tug back and forth between the tech industry and the telecom industry. They both believe they own your cell phone. <laughs> so they both think that we should make all the money when you use all the cell phone. We should, for instance, ads, retargeting ads. They, they would love to swap out the ads with their own ads and say, okay, we're doing it. Um, you've seen a lot of things over the years with tracking cookies, um, tracking users where they go. Why? Because that, that data about where you're going, what you're clicking on is extremely valuable um, for marketing um, and for sales for companies. And selling that data um, makes a lot of additional revenue. The big thing with the carriers is that they don't want to be just a big, simple pipe. That's not a profitable business. They want to, they, they want to have value adds. So back before we had smartphones, it was things like getting directions, um, getting fancy ringtones. There were all these additional ways to get revenue from a cell phone. Now um, it's more like they, there's more and more pressure coming in from the tech industry. We'll give everybody that for free and we'll encrypt everything. So you can't retarget them. You can't track them as easily. Um, etc. You can't see all their DNS requests now. Um, so that has been a, a big thing, a big, big thing that putting a lot of pressure on them, you know, find other ways to become more profitable. Um, and we've seen them try a lot of different ways, both AT&T and Verizon. Uh, Verizon had several initiatives, you know, trying to offer video as a service um, out there in, in things like uh, there was Redbox on Verizon. There were several other initiatives where they would say, okay, we've got this extra service. We're like YouTube, but a different version of it. Or you can rent and watch movies through us. You don't have to go to Hulu and go through Netflix. You don't have to go with the bigger, well-known tech companies. We have our own alternatives. Uh, similar with AT&T. Um, however, we've seen over the past couple of years, a lot of those initiatives haven't gone very well um, because in, in my opinion, they are really, really good at running networks. But when it comes to like social media and engaging audiences and entertaining them, it, it's just a little bit, uh, it's a much different skill set and requires a different focus of the company um, to come in and do that and execute on that profitably well. So that is why they want that data transmission to be reliable, but also affordable uh, to them because the cost of putting you know, a gig of data through a, let's say a, a Helium LTE um, antenna setup that someone has set up at their home on a roof, they're, they're basically free bandwidth. So the Helium network could price it extremely competitively to Verizon's internal cost to deliver a gigabyte of data to the point where it's more profitable for them to work with Helium because it is at a price that they just can't touch. On a high level, that's what really matters is we've got to be able to, there's basically an insatiable hunger from these devices for more and more bandwidth, for more and more data everywhere as cheap as possible. And um, the thing is that the carriers do, like, there's another part of it too, what do they do that we don't do? They do customer service, they have retail locations, um, they work with billing. They do all that, that endpoint kind of fuzzy human stuff that, you know, I, you know, you don't want, really want a crypto network doing with grandma. So it's better for them to kind of handle the fleshy human stuff 
of uh, stores and people and talking. They can do all that customer service kind of kind of work, but on the back end, we can invisibly be an extension of the network um, at a very competitive cost. Um, and as well, as long as the performance works out as comparable to what they have now, which I, I think is is possible. Yeah, a lot of those quote unquote value added services that you mentioned. I remember when they used to be prevalent, right? That the Verizon navigation or AT&T navigation or whatever, there are so many different services and they're all so terrible. I mean, even now it seems like they've given up and they're just bundling other services like Hulu and Netflix and whatever, depending on which carrier you choose, because they know that they can't do those services well. And of course, the tracking and the data selling, I mean, most people don't know that because of the nature of cell service that you're connected to a macro site that is near you or a small cell that is near you, your phone company knows who you are and they know where your cell phone is at all times. They can triangulate pretty much where you are at all times and they can they can then sell that location data to advertisers who want to target you more accurately based on your device's IP address, right? Your carrier has all of that data. I mean, I recently learned that for my carrier, I have to go into some really deep buried dashboard just in order to disable certain permissions for them to track and share my location, my IP address, and give me, you know, quote unquote, enhanced targeted ads based on all of it. I'm sure 99% of people don't even know that that stuff exists, but it's a huge source of revenue for the carriers. This cost reduction is kind of part of the acknowledgement that they're not going to be able to milk that stuff forever, right? They're going to have to eventually become what they detest, which is the dumb pipe, who just is a network for sending data all the services on top of it, all that revenue is extracted by some third party who they can maybe partner with to, you know, refer some customers or whatever. But at the end of the day, their main competency is building the physical network and is also servicing the customers and having those relationships, especially with the less tech savvy users that they really need those in-person, on-the-phone, supportive relationships in order to keep those people as customers. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people come in and say, you know, why would you pay more for Verizon AT&T? Because it's a better service. That's why. Uh, so that's what, what really matters to people. Better customer service, faster speeds, more reliable speeds, all really important things that come out there. Um, however, I, I would argue is, is if it's a competitive industry, um, the speeds, the, the technical aspects should equalize out to a certain point to where they're, they're hard to distinguish with similar investments. Um um, and then you start getting into, you know, how much spectrum they have, how many radios they have. You start getting into the technical details of, you know, having more more radio resources so the phone can talk more and transmit more data back to cell sites. But, uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Th those value-added services that they had and extra apps, all the stuff we paid for, like in the early 2000s, it's all free now. And you would never think of paying, you know, 10 bucks a month for it um, or something like that or paying subscription for a ringtone, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, and I remember BZ Navigator was a huge app uh, back before Google Maps. It was the, probably the best turn-by-turn -turn navigation you can get, but it wasn't cheap. Um, you had to pay a healthy price for it. So there, there, there's a lot there, and they will. I think they're always going to have people's navigation data, location data. There's just it's just how the service works, um, and that will be that. That's going to be it. And the tech companies have kind of said, we own media. You know, if you want Hulu, HBO Max. Um, you know, which is what people actually want to watch. Um, you know, they've been forced to bundle it versus create their own competitive services uh, that were out there over the last 10 years, but uh, media services that didn't, didn't do so well. Um, so that's, 
that's where that's why I think the, the motivation for them to come to the table and say, yes, we want to try this. We're going to try it out. And I think it only takes one, either Verizon, AT&T or T-Mobile slash Sprint to come to the table and say, we're all in. We're a partner. You can use some of our spectrum or a CBRS spectrum with compatible handsets. We want to offload as much as possible because we need all the bandwidth we can get, we need all the data we can get, we need all the coverage we can get, and this will give us an advantage. And as soon as the first one does it, I think the rest of them will just uh, will come on board very quickly. Well, we know from FreedomFi CEO Boris Rensky's recent FAQ that one of them is currently in the integration phase. So if your theory is right, we're going to have all of them. I hope you're right. Yeah, I, I definitely think we will. Um, yeah, I saw the, the answers from the Q&A. It, they're pretty serious. I'm very excited about it. It's the biggest, I think it's the, for people like me who are very excited about telecom and decentralizing it, bring down the cost and bring it to the people and sharing the revenue. It's just, um, it's very exciting. But like everybody says, you know, you can't hurry up, you know, having a baby. It comes when it's ready. So fingers crossed it comes. That's right. What's the analogy? Nine women can't make a baby in a month. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> it's one of those things you never think about until you do think about it. And then you realize, wow, there's no way to speed certain things in life up. So let's talk about the cost reduction. The carriers are very insistent on having a low cost of providing service to each customer and they measure their cost per gigabyte. I've seen estimates that it costs a carrier between two to five dollars per gigabyte to offload onto towers they don't own. And of course, a lot of what happens in cell service is you with your carrier roaming onto another carrier's tower that your carrier does not own, but has a agreement with that other carrier that their customers can use the tower and your carrier pays that carrier per gigabyte in order to access the tower. Now I've seen estimates that that's between two and $5 a gigabyte. Typically the proposed rate that has been approved through HIP 27 for the Helium network is 50 cents per gigabyte. So that is five to 10 times lower than what the carriers are getting. Now, if you look at why this is possible, it makes a lot of sense. And you said it earlier, soft costs for deploying Helium 5G hotspots are so low that they're able to undercut the carrier's own cost of deploying their own network. Because with Helium 5G, you have a hotspot that's using existing land, that the hotspot deployer probably already owns or has access to, existing power connections, existing internet connections, and the time and labor of the hotspot deployer to deploy it and maintain it and invest in the initial equipment. When someone deploys a 5G hotspot, they're looking at upfront an investment in the thousands to tens of thousands of dollars. But from their perspective, that's about it. They are already paying for all of the other things that are necessary to deploy the 5G hotspot, depending on how they choose to deploy, like if they want to deploy at home or in a commercial location that they already have access to. So that is what allows that cost per gigabyte to be so low. And then at that point, once it's deployed, that 50 cents per gigabyte for the Helium hotspot owner is very profitable. And for the telco is also very profitable because they're saying, wow, I can serve customers in this small spot that had no coverage before, they get to get a positive impression of my brand because they are getting service somewhere that they wouldn't otherwise, whether that's an underground bar or a rural area that's served by Helium 5G outdoor antennas. And the carrier gets to become more profitable in the process. It is very much an everyone wins situation. So is that why you're saying that you know you think that all the carriers are going to pile on because there's almost no downside for them? Yeah. Um... And that is the main reason why I think they're going to pile in. Yes, is because the economics can't be beat. It is so efficient to have 
to simply pay by the gig instead of pay all those fixed costs um, and recurring costs for equipment and staff. Um, the only thing I'm sure that they're nervous about is, is the quality of it. So to make sure they don't interfere with each other, because um, that's where they spend a lot of, a lot of work. But, but the bigger, the bigger kind of elephant in the room is, is going to be saying, um, I want the coverage, you know, in certain areas. And they could even, you know, if they wanted to, they could open up a little bit, share some of their performance data and actually say, I need more helium offload in these areas because you'll make X amount per month based on our projections. If they want to really open up their numbers, they've got the data and they could say, we need you here. And people would come, I'm sure people would come flying in and saying, well, even though it costs $10,000 to get a host, get a dedicated inter internet connection um, and get the equipment, um, I'm going to make that back in X months. And uh, for a, a business decision, I'm going to get better than I get the stock market, better than 4% or 10% or whatever. And, you know, I'm going to deploy there if I can. I think people are naturally going to figure out where to put hotspots, which is mainly going to be downtown and highly congested areas and indoor areas and start deploying them there. As we're on the topic of cost, I want to talk a little bit about a cost that we've been mentioning a little bit, but kind of shying away from, which is the spectrum licenses. This is the main cost in deploying any cellular network. If you read any telecom publication, you'll see that there are these spectrum auctions that happen routinely. And these are basically auctions by the FCC to buy licenses in order to legally broadcast in certain areas of the country. Usually they're spanning the entire country. But of course, this, these licenses are purchased piecemeal. But you'll see the big carriers bidding literally tens of billions of dollars to get countrywide licenses for a certain new uh, frequency spectrum that is opened up because you know it, it is now unused, it was previously used for something else, or just its previous license has elapsed and now there needs to be a new auction. So this is an incredible source of revenue for the FCC, for the US government, just selling these licenses. I want to talk a little bit about the big picture of Helium 5G. We've talked a lot about its purpose, like where it can fill in gaps. I really want to touch on why it can even exist. And you brought this up earlier. You said the miracle of CBRS. Anyone who has read about it in depth and studied what CBRS is, it truly is a miracle. Like it's almost entirely unbelievable that it even exists. It is something that only exists in the United States. As far as I know, we are a leader in this space. And basically what it is, is it's called shared spectrum, where there is an open license that anyone can use to broadcast within this band as long as they follow certain rules, kind of like how 2.4 gigahertz and 5 gigahertz work for Wi-Fi. But this, in these bands, you can transmit cellular data signals, which is completely new. Like there is nowhere really on earth where you could just go and deploy your own cellular network because of the simple fact that there is no license available for individuals to do that for free. CBRS is this miraculous thing where instead of the FCC making another few tens of billions of dollars selling spectrum licenses within this range, they've decided to open it up. I think from their perspective, they see that it could enable so much innovation that it's actually to the benefit of everybody to just have this open spectrum, which does have certain rules and is shared with the military that you can you know get deep into the caveats of CBRS. But this is what allows Helium 5G to even exist. Without 
CBRS, there is no Helium 5G. With the free nature of CBRS, this is the way that Helium 5G can undercut the carriers on their offering. The Spectrum license, which is the most expensive part of the whole thing, is just free. And I, I don't think it can be overstated how significant that is. It's huge. And there's one add-on that I'll add to that. Also in March of last year, they also added um, an addendum statement that actually supersedes any HOA in the organization that gets in the way of deploying communications equipment. So that's another plus. So if, um, you know, a lot of people talk about this on the community, about complaints about your antenna's ugly or too high or whatever, as long as it's used for broadband communications, you it supersedes any local regulations. You saw this also with small cells because a lot of cities were blocking small cells. FCC came in and said, well, um, you, you are allowed to object to it and plan for it, but you, you can't just block them, all of them. You have to approve them. You don't have a choice. And that's we're seeing the same thing with deploying telecom equipment, also from the FCC. They're very, very pro deployment of connectivity. And so, yeah, it's a huge gift to, uh, to, to the USA to do this. And I think that uh, hopefully over the next five, 10 years, it makes us to have, you know, we're, we're a little jealous of, uh, let's just say it, we're a little jealous of the broadband prices and connectivity other nations have. Like I'll mention like South Korea. Everyone's got broadband. Everyone's got a gig. They're like a gig is nothing. And right. another thing that I'll mention is let's is I always keep an eye on the future, on the big picture. Let's look forward to 6G as well. Right now, some test, you know, some news came out today about um, some testing that they're doing. 6G is planned to have a maximum data speed of one terabit per second to a cell phone. Right now, in the labs, they've confirmed they can hit um, up. now 5G. Um, you know, with line of sight, you can hit a gigabit. So, but that is, that is a huge amount of data. How are we ever going to have that much available? Um, so that's a, that's a bigger challenge that I think we need to, to work on for the next couple of years. You know, even if we deploy out all these cell sites, what about the next generation? How are we going to be able to get terabit speeds to people's houses and, and to all these hotspots all over the nation? Um, I think that's going to be really interesting to watch for the next couple of years. Definitely. I mean, global data demand is pretty much just a curve up and to the right, right? It's just an exponential growth curve that never goes down. It seems that no matter how much new capacity is deployed, it is in time in a matter of years met with maximum saturation of that capacity because we discover new things to do with our phones and new, you know, applications or just, you know, making existing applications better, like clearer video calls or whatever. This stuff all uses more bandwidth. So the the Demand for wireless bandwidth is basically up towards infinity forever. Let's talk a little bit about the opportunities and risks for people who are interested in deploying Helium 5G hotspots. I'll just say right up front that there is no chance that you're going to earn anything deploying a Helium 5G hotspot in at least the next three to six months because there's integration going in, going on on the back end to enable the telcos to pay into the Helium data credit infrastructure. So that is currently what's holding up earnings. So no one's going to be earning anything anytime soon. But the big picture, like what type of deployments are we going for with Helium 5G? How can we maximize our utility? It's clear that we are not, as of present, building our own first party 5G network. We are filling the niche of offloading the big carriers. Like this is the most important thing for Helium 5G hotspots to do right now. And it's something that we can do that fits in extremely well and creates a symbiotic relationship with the carriers, which has 
all sorts of benefits. For someone who is looking to deploy a Helium 5G hotspot, what do you recommend that they look for in terms of setting, where they're deploying it? Are they going to be able to compete with what the carriers have out there outdoors? Or should they just stick to indoors for now? What are your tips for someone who's interested in getting into this? Yeah. So here's what I would do. Um, and I would agree that's for the crazy visionaries like me buying, uh, spending thousands of dollars on radios and equipment that currently makes me zero and will likely make me zero for several months to come. But that is okay because I'm an enthusiast. I love this stuff. I love getting into it. So um, what I would do is use apps like Open Signal and look for where there's poor coverage, especially near uh, big areas. So I know of many, many communities. I'm, I'm here in Wisconsin. Many, many places that are starving for 5G coverage and 4G coverage today. Why? Because they don't allow the carriers in on their macro cells. They put their small cells in, but not the macros. So there are, there's, look at open signal, look at the speeds, look at the coverage from the current carriers. You're going to find these little niches, these little areas to where coverage is not that great, but there's a lot of population or a good amount of population. That'd be a good first strategy to do spots. I can tell you right now that I already have a waiting list of people who want um, want those want me to put those up um, at their house because they are starving right now for high-speed data. The coverage sucks. They want more speed, and they they get to make something on the back end. They love it. They just want to do it for better coverage. I got people who have like vacation houses who are like, dude, I'll, I'll pay you to put one up because I have such bad service, um, you know, in this in this vacation community or in this RV park. Like, like, I think the biggest, there, there's a lot of opportunities out there. I think right now, if you're smart, you're getting very aggressive and locking in hosting agreements to where you want to put these up. Exclusivity agreements or, or revenue sharing agreements, which is what I do is revenue share. So um, to, to get those spots, there are very valuable spots right now to go after that are really obvious, um, that are underserved, that basically have unlimited data demand. Uh, think of parks. Think of places like that. There's, a, I'm not gonna let them all out of the bag, but there's a lot to think of. Um, I would talk to them now. I already have a waiting list for when equipment is ready. On the flip side, I don't think equipment is gonna be ready this year. I don't think we're gonna see a lot of, um, a lot of any 5G antenna availability until next year, uh, just because uh, you know right now we're in the, the lunar, lunar new new year, or the lunar Chinese year, um, so everything shuts down. Um, every year, but I, I just think that with the lockdowns happening in China, it's completely still causing massive um, manufacturing delays. Um, I would plan and lock in where you want to put these and only put these on those locations where you think you're going to make a lot. This is not like helium hotspots where you might want to take a little gamble and say, oh, well, this spot looks pretty nice. You know, I think they're going to make over X amount, which is, you know, whatever your minimum is, or maybe you don't have a minimum. You may not want to make that same gamble when it's a $10,000 piece of equipment <laughs> to just put it out there. That's where I would focus on. So use open signal. Think of major areas that have huge internet demand, like, like parks, um, vacation areas, um, especially even, even uh, seasonal areas uh, for big events. Uh, think of fireworks shows. Where does everybody go? Things like that. Think of where concerts are at. Maybe you can just be just outside the concert. Because for all of the, you know, here's another thing in the industry I'll share. Um, there's terms we call colt and cow. It means sell on like truck or sell on wheels. And those are where for special events, all the carriers roll in actual trucks and they put up temporary cell sites um, to cover that event. Because they know that there's going to be so many people there and so many demand, so much demand. They're going to get complaints if they don't, especially if they, they sponsor whatever that event is. So they bring in trucks and actually wire up fiber internet and put it up 
because they don't want to get complaints because they know if they get complaints at a big event, customers go to the other carrier. They're like, oh, I'm on Verizon. Oh, Verizon sucks here every year. I'm going to go to AT&T. You know, oh, AT&T was good. Oh, now it sucks here. I'm going to go back to Verizon. So uh, there's a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of that happens um, going back and forth, you know, or I want to go with T-Mobile. Uh, so that's what I would be thinking of is deploying to those areas and locking those in as soon as possible. Those are the biggest opportunities. And, I, you know, even at a crazy cost of $10,000 or $5,000 or 2500 I think these agreements are going to go through. You are going to end up, if you get anywhere close to the current number that that that's been agreed to i i don't see how in the long term meeting a year plus they want to pay for themselves um with, with a decent deployment i'd be more worried about getting the locations and actually having enough data like you're going to need i mean to really max out some of these uh, most of them you know i was looking at the base cell spec sheet and really it maxes out at about you know 520 530 560 megabyte you know think to yourself is that something i can actually support like in my backhaul can i act do i actually have a have internet that can go that fast. Um, because you, even though you have a perfect deployment in the right spot, maybe limiting yourself by how much data you're actually able to send off. Um, so I think that's going to become a bigger and bigger issue uh, with 5G deployments and onto the future of 6G when it gets here. So my plan of uh, sending a balloon with a helium hotspot into Coachella with a fiber line hanging off of it, I'm basically going to be a millionaire, right? Oh, man, if we can handle the data. Oh, man, don't, don't, <laughs> do yourself a favor. Don't look at the Facebook groups for uh, uh, cheap helium installs. There's a lot of nightmares on there that are like that. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, you're, we're definitely targeting more of the uh, highly motivated slash professional crowd with this 5G stuff. As you said, I mean, I think you said it really well. It's just going to take a lot more time and effort and placement. And there's going to be a lot more to think about as opposed to deploying LoRaWAN hotspots. The backhaul requirements are different. The power requirements are different. The placement is different. The amount of coverage you can provide is different. And the, the upfront cost is just much, much, much higher. All that paired with the fact that, you know, as you also referenced, the carrier agreements aren't there yet. So, you know, even if you do deploy now or in the next six months or a year, until those carrier roaming deals are not only signed, but fully integrated, I think that's something that people don't think about. Just because a carrier deal is announced does not mean the integration is done, right? Dish was announced months ago, and it's still going to be months until you can roam from Boost Mobile onto Helium hotspots. And it's going to be months until you can earn anything. There are a lot of unknowns, but from what you're saying, I can understand that the known factors of what a good location will be is actually much more certain than LoRaWAN because you have this existing install base of devices. So if you make the assumption that all the carrier deals are through and, and everyone who has a phone in their pocket can talk to your hotspot in any given area, it's actually very straightforward to determine what the best areas are. So for anyone who's enterprising out there, you can really start taking those first steps and finding your areas, maybe doing some surveys. One day, the carriers will re release their own reports because I assume that they spend millions or tens of millions of dollars surveying their own networks and then finding where their so-called soft spots are where they don't have coverage, right? An ideal future that I see is that carriers are openly sharing this data and people with Helium 5G hotspots and, and time and resources are going to be out there filling in the coverage. And as someone who lived in an area where there was no coverage when I was a teenager, it was extremely frustrating. Like it was a legitimate quality of life decrease. And all we could do is beg for them to fix that. 
And we couldn't even get them to send us, you know, a little microcell that we could host for free at home that would at least give us coverage in our house, let alone get paid to do that. I think this is going to be a very attractive option for the people who, as you said, are just starving for coverage right now and can't get the cell companies to do anything about it. The rest of us are out here in our always connected world, but there are millions of people out there who are legitimately suffering because they cannot get a good cell phone connection or a good home internet connection, which could also be provided by Helium 5G. It, it has a big a big impact on people's well-being. And I, I'm just thinking of, you know, um, I'm trying to work with, with some communities in, in Milwaukee and Madison. And I think if you deploy this to somebody, to an area that's underserved, um, the revenue share, not only for that location could change their life, but for that entire area to now actually have reliable service is, is a huge boost. It's very exciting in the long term. In the short term, we're figuring it out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I, I do love how the revenue sort of goes back into communities instead of you know going into AT&T shareholders, <laughs> right? Uh, share buybacks or whatever, because you're essentially taking that money that's being paid already to the, the telcos, and that's going into helium data credit burn and going into the pockets of hotspot hosts, that is kind of the Trojan horse effect of helium 5G. That existing money that exists completely outside of the crypto space is sort of being beckoned into uh, the crypto space and into the helium network token. It's a fascinating experiment. And you know, you could imagine that long term, this could be like simultaneously the best and the worst decisions for carriers because they could end up funding the thing, the structure that ends up dismantling them if, you know, a thousand things go right. There's a long way between here and there, but it's a very interesting scenario of like damned if you do, damned if you don't for them as they are looking to deploy more low cost coverage. Yeah, I, I think as a profit driven corporation, it will draw them in and, and uh, eventually, I, I don't know, if, I don't think we'll ever get rid of um, the carriers, um, but I think. It will allow them to, to be more efficient with the resources um, that they choose to spend on deployment um, considerably. And if they, you know, I'm waiting for a carrier to stand up, you know, who knows who it will be, and actually say, we're not just going to partner with Helium. We're going to promote it. Like, we're going to be partners. We're going to share data with you. We're going to help you grow. There are areas where you are a perfect solution, and we need you there. Um, there are other areas where we don't want you there because we don't want you polluting the RF. We want to have our macro cells and small cells take care of it. So that that's the real interesting part. Well, it's a really exciting future. I can't wait for it to play out. I'm sure we could cover so many more subjects, and I'd love to have you on again in the future to go a little bit deeper. But I think this was an awesome high-level overview of sort of how the carriers fit in with Helium, you know, what they're feeling right now, what, what their pain points are. You know, what is the opportunity here? This subject is so deep, right? The, the subject of cellular service and 5G, of course, in an hour, we can only scratch the surface. But I hope that people will submit their questions to me if there are more topics that you want to see covered and you want an expert like Russ to answer them. I think we're both open to, you know, taking in your questions and just answering them as much as possible. And I'm sure I'll have more of my own questions as I digest the information that I've taken in today. Uh, and from other conversations we've had. Russ, thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited to uh, get all this information out there. Likewise, I appreciate you having me on. I'm so excited about the community and what we're going to do. I'd, I'd love if people would send questions. I'm an open book. Feel free to ask anything you want. And maybe we can do a, a Twitter space soon where, because uh, that's actually where we met. You yeah. hopped in on one of my Twitter spaces and you were just answering questions, firing off like crazy. And I was just like, I'm just going to let this guy talk for like <laughs> as long as possible because he's saying amazing stuff. 
Um, but maybe we could do more of those sort of open Q and A's and I will get better at recording that stuff and putting it out so that people can hear it if they weren't able to be there in real time. Sounds good. Awesome. All right, Russ, thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you for tuning into The Hotspot. If you love our content, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you want to maximize your impact, leave your honest review on Apple Podcasts. Your support helps us reach more listeners and educate them about the Helium Network.